Good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Stephen. I have the pleasure of serving as the lead pastor here at All Souls. Good to see you. Um, We are working our way through Mark's first century biography of Jesus. We've been doing this since October of last year, kind of taking breaks every now and then. And uh, it's the longest, you know, sermon series that I personally have been a part of. This is uh, 18 weeks into it and we are still, we're in chapter six, so we're not even like... Uh, There's 16 chapters in Mark. We're not even halfway yet. But a number of you have told me how much you've appreciated kind of even just the slower pace has been a bit of a a gift to kind of really go in and dive deep in gospel to see it in a new way. Uh, And that's what I said at the beginning of this series. We've been calling it the way of Jesus. And the idea of it is not just to know more things about Jesus or to, you know, spend some time parsing some Greek verbs. Although I kind of, you know, I nerd out on that kind of stuff. The point of it and the aim of discipleship is to be with Jesus so that we can be transformed in his likeness and then bear that likeness out into the world. So we're going to continue in this series. We're going to uh, finish up this section of it next week uh, before we take a break and move into a summer series on the practice of hospitality. Because uh, summer's a great time for that, um, to slow down, to be present with family, with friends, to just be with one another, with friends, with neighbors. And you know, at heart, that's what hospitality is about. It's kind of creating a space where you can offer the best of what you have and the best of who you are so that others can do the same. They can bring the best of who they are. Um, the history of the church is the history of a table, of gathering around for hundreds of years. This is where people of Jesus met and the gospel, the story of Jesus spread from one table to the next, from one home to the next, uh, over and over throughout the world, all over a meal together. Uh, So that's in a few weeks, but for this morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. We come to a scene that is kind of a bit of a homecoming for Jesus. But there's a lot more going on here than just Jesus going back to visit his old stomping ground. At heart, Jesus is preparing his disciples to see three things. That proximity to him is not the same thing as faith in him. And because of that, they will face the inevitability of rejection. But rejection is also not always the end of that story. And so because this is a short section, I'm going to do something a little bit different uh, in that uh, I'm going to read through the text, but I'm not going to do it kind of all in one chunk. So we say, you know, this is the word of the Lord at the end, like we normally do. Um, I'm going to work through it line by line. And if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. If you have your worship guide, you can, you can read along that way. And then we're going to talk about what it means for us as we apprentice ourselves to Jesus. You with me? Good, because I don't know what I would have done if you just said no. Like, you, you lost us there. I'd say, I don't have plan B. All right, verse one, here we go. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. So we're going to start by kind of just with a map 
this is Galilee. This is kind of where Jesus was from. Up until this point, you know, he has been up in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. He's been doing his ministry there about 30 miles from the place where he grew up. He has been reaching those that are on the margins there. And people all throughout this time of his early ministry have been receiving him with astonishment. And then he goes down, uh, down into the Decapolis here where he uh, freaks out some pig farmers. That's kind of what goes on down there. And all this time, it's just been forward momentum. Word is getting out about this rabbi who, who has these amazing words of wisdom, but who backs up these words with astonishing power as well. And so while it is not mentioned in Mark's gospel, we know that his hometown is this little place here called Nazareth. What do we know about Nazareth? Not much. Uh, it is the kind of place that is not mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned in any of the rabbinic literature. It's the kind of place that you would come across and you would wonder, why on earth would anyone willingly choose to live here? Uh, it, it's a little bit like my hometown in California. Um, whenever I was out there and I would tell people that I come from Bakersfield, uh, they would have one of those things where they would look at me and they'd say, oh, I'm sorry. And it's like, have you ever had one of those conversations where like you can actually see yourself lowering in somebody's estimation, like in real time as it's happening? That's what it was like. I mean, nobody really has any expectations from you when you grow up in a place that is a thousand miles from nowhere. Verse two, when Sabbath came, Jesus goes into the temple and began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. So Jesus shows up in his, presumably the, the home synagogue, the place that saw him grow up, and he's teaching there. And as he's speaking, the spirit is moving. People are drawn in by the nearness, by the availability of the kingdom. They are amazed at the things that he is saying. But then something starts to shift. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles that he is performing? And the thing I want you to notice here is that notice it's not, you know, where did Jesus, this guy that we know, get these things? It's where did this man get these things? There's this starting to kind of distance themselves from him. I mean, at its peak, Nazareth had maybe 500 people in it. So everybody knew who he was. The thing that I find fascinating about this is that nobody is denying that Jesus has wisdom. Nobody is denying that Jesus has power. These things, they are on full display when he is in his home synagogue. In fact, people are amazed. The, the word conveys the sense of, of awe, of astonishment, like he's blowing their minds. But what they seem to doubt is that he should be able to do this. Like, where did this spiritual authority that Jesus has, where did it come from? 
Israel had its own educational process. I've, I've talked about this in the past. It had you know, kind of this three-tiered system where the best of the best of the best and only the best of the best of the best would go on and receive training with a rabbi, would come and apprentice themselves to a rabbi, and then would go on to become rabbis themselves. And so these people, they would have seen Jesus. They would have seen him grow up in this small town for a couple of decades. And they're starting to kind of put all this stuff together. They're like, wait a minute, wait a minute when did Jesus go off and get training with the rabbi? We, we, we saw him, we saw him grow up. We, we saw him work with his father. And so they start to ask, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas? Some translations say Jude and Simon. Aren't his sisters here with us? So even though they are impressed, all of these questions start to kind of mount up and the suspension of disbelief starts to unravel in front of them. Wait a minute. Isn't this the builder? And then the gloves come off. Isn't this Mary's boy? And now that might blow right past us as we read this. We're like, well, what's wrong with that? Like, that's Mary's son. Well, you got to remember, this was a patriarchal, patrilineal, you know, culture. You wouldn't call somebody by the mother's name. You would call them by the father's name. But you got to remember that Jesus grow, grew up in this small town. And so maybe this is not a, a not so subtle dig at his lineage. Yeah, isn't this the one where we're not quite sure about the father? I mean, can you imagine growing up in a small town... And there's a wedding, and then a couple months later, there's a child. In a small town, everybody starts to get really interested in math, right? And so this is maybe a not-so-subtle dig at, is this, is this Jesus the bastard? Like, who is this? And all these kind of doubts starting to roll up, Mark notes that they took offense at him. The word that he uses to describe how people respond to Jesus is the word scandalizo. It's the word from which we get the, the English equivalent to scandalize, right? Uh, it's this idea of that which causes offense or revulsion that results in opposition, in disapproval, in hostility. Eight times, Mark uses this word to describe the way that people respond to Jesus. We see it the first time in chapter 3. We are told that the Herodians and the Pharisees are offended by him. And this offense goes so deep that they, they join together. They actually conspire to kill Jesus. We, the shadow of the cross is there in the very beginning of the gospel. And the thing to note about these two groups is that they are two groups who cannot stand each other. They are two groups that would not have, uh, could not be any different in the Roman world. They would not have agreed on a single thing. They are left-wing secular elites and right-wing religious conservatives. Not anything that they would look on and see eye to eye except for this, that somebody has got to do something about this upstart rabbi. But we see here that it's not just the elite that Jesus is offending now it's everybody. Jesus produces this visceral reaction to the point that it actually hardens 
the people in his hometown in their unbelief against him. And so the story ends with this kind of play on words. Uh, Jesus says to his disciples, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. And he could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. Like, like, like that's not a big deal or something. <laughs> and he was amazed at their lack of faith. Again, up to this point, the crowds out in Capernaum, they have all been amazed at what Jesus has done. That's a word that kind of follows him everywhere he goes. This sense of awe, this sense of reverence, this sense that something, something unimaginable is happening in the presence. The, the nearness of the kingdom of God, you can taste it, you can feel it whenever it is that Jesus teaches. The miracles, the healings. But here, it's Jesus who's amazed. And he's amazed at their lack of faith. And so he quotes this well-known proverb of the day that a prophet is not without honor except, and notice the kind of narrowing circles of influence that he describes in his own town, among his own relatives, in his own home. Jesus had family members who did not believe in who he was, who did not believe in what he came to do. In fact, early Mark tells us in chapter 3 that his brothers go out to get him. They wonder aloud if Jesus, their brother, has lost his flippin' mind. Those who were closest to Jesus rejected him. And so the story kind of ends with this haunting amazement uh, of Jesus at just how strong that rejection is. The idea is that it, it surprises even Jesus how strong the, the opposition to him is in his hometown. So what's going on in the story? What does it have to do with us? Well, writing in a culture that was permeated with Christian ideas and categories and language, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard noted that he, there was this stark disconnect in the people. So we have to grapple with, on some level, with the exclusivity, with the offensiveness of Jesus. And so he writes, it is only from the possibility of offense that one either turns to offense or to faith. But one never comes to faith except by the possibility of offense. At some level, you've got to deal with the fact that Jesus is saying, I mean, given the enormity of what he is saying about himself, it brings you to the stretching point to where the only real options are offense or faith. Either he is who he says he is, and that means something, means everything about how we live and how we respond, or... This is flatly ridiculous. And who cares? But there's not really much space in between. And when it comes to trusting him, there is this kind of internal tug of war that we constantly feel between clarity and confusion, between what we think we want and what we actually get with Jesus. Things have been going really well in Jesus' ministry up until now. 
He's just coming off this streak of successes, just one after another. He is, he is taught and he has healed. He has calmed a storm at sea. He has calmed a storm inside a man. And then he gets off the boat on the other side and he he heals a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years, caps it off with raising to life a 12-year-old girl. It's been a good week for Jesus. I mean, you think you've had a good week at work, right? It, things are, are constantly going up, and there's this sense among the disciples that if you were following him, that the narrative would be very easy to fall into, that things are constantly going to be moving up and to the right, and the kingdom of God is going to come in in this seamless transition, and everything is going to be going, only going to be getting better. Except for the fact that when he goes to his hometown, they see that proximity to Jesus isn't a guarantee that faith is going to happen. In fact, sometimes it is the exact opposite of what happens. Commenting on this passage, the New Testament scholar Jim Edwards writes, Exposure to the gospel inoculates as often as it enlivens. It's a really sobering thought. And we all know that, right? I mean, we all have that experience. We've known family members or, or friends or people that we love who we want nothing more than for them to know and experience the love of God made real in Jesus, this thing that has been so powerful in our own lives. And yet for one reason or another, they just don't buy it. No matter how many times we drag them to church, no matter how many great books we, ex we expose them to and say, hey, this thing changed my life. The, in fact, sometimes the more that we want it for them, the less that they want it for themselves. Well, it's because genuine faith is complicated. The truth is we can also be really close to Jesus and we can miss out on his offensiveness altogether because we have our own perceptions, our own agendas that have inoculated us against the Jesus as he appears in the gospels. And we swap it out for Jesus of our own making, a Jesus that suits our own, our own purposes, be they you know, political, relational, or otherwise. And the thing that we see in Nazareth, the thing that trips people up with Jesus there is that he is just so close to them. They're just, they're, they're so intimate with him. They know who he is. They saw him grow up that they, it just, it, they cannot wrap their heads around the idea that he could be anything more than just a local boy who's started to get a little bit of fame for himself. And so they hear this message that the kingdom is here. And then in Jesus, this kingdom has come near because wherever Jesus is, the kingdom comes with him. And they realize, well, this, is, this can't be the king that we are expecting. And one of these core aspects of Jesus' identity, that the, something that's so beautiful, something that's so incredible and so true about him, it's on full display here, is that Jesus, he just appears so ordinary. And you can see the tension in this story that at first people are drawn in. They, they, they definitely, they see, they sense that there's something different in Jesus' teaching, something good, something perhaps even holy. 
But then all the tapes start winding back on the ways that they had experienced Jesus throughout their lives. And, and they just, you know, people with fathers like the builder, with, with mothers like Mary, people with, with brothers and sisters like the people that we know, that person cannot be the king. He is too much like us to be the king that we have been hoping for. And they're out. Jesus' ordinariness is scandalous. And I think it still is. But I also think this kind of Nazareth mentality persists in a lot of corners within the church. I mean, think about even, you know, when one takes a thoughtful kind of nuanced approach to the scripture, wrestling with what it has to say about how we embody the kingdom in the here and now. And it takes into account that scripture is a library of documents, both divine and human in origin, yet somehow it tells a unified story of God's grace in Jesus. It almost seems too much to believe, to hold intention, that idea that it could be both divine and human. I, I remember when I was in seminary, I had this experience of a classmate who just kind of bolted angrily during a session and ultimately ended up abandoning his faith because a professor casually pointed out that there are as many textual variations in the New Testament as there are words in the New Testament. And most of these are deeply minor, but some of them took a couple hundred years for the church to figure out. But for him, it was all black or white. If it couldn't be that, then it, it, it couldn't be trusted at all. Which is to say that he didn't stop ever being a fundamentalist. He just traded sides of what side of the fundamentals he was on. And there's been kind of this temptation all throughout the history of the church to think that talking about divine inspiration somehow negates human authorship as though God couldn't possibly allow human writers to use their cultural forms, their expressions, their artistic styles, their own unique genius to somehow bear witness to Jesus. But that's all God has given us. But there's a sense that that's, no, it's too ordinary. People like you and me, it's too ordinary to somehow be divine. It's too much like us to have any spiritual authority over our lives. Biblical theologian Dale Bruner captures this tension well when he writes that this story teaches us to weigh realities. It teaches us that Jesus is not less messianic for being human, nor is he less divine from coming from ordinary stock. It is the glory of God to stoop. It's the glory of God to inhabit frail flesh like this. And so we hold Jesus' divinity not in tension with his humanity, but in harmony with his humanity. And it's a lot to take in. Nazareth found it too much to believe. And that leads to the second thing, that the, the bigger picture that Jesus is kind of preparing his disciples for is the inevitability of rejection. And as apprentices to Jesus, what was true for them is also true for us. In John's gospel, uh, Jesus tells his disciples a, a number of things. There's this very long kind of discourse at the end where he serves the last supper, where he washes their feet. But in that, it's not all, everything's going to be great, guys. He tells them, in this world, you will have trouble. And he tells them this after he's already told them, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And in case you're kind of like hanging on the if in that sentence, it's like, oh, maybe there's a chance. 
Luke's a little bit more blunt about it. He says, everyone will hate you because of me. So that's good news. Let's close in prayer. (laughs) When people talk about clinging to the promises of God, I don't think these are necessarily the ones that they have in mind, right? But I think that there's a couple of things in there that we just got to wrestle with if we're going to be faithful. And one of those things is right here in the text. The other is just beneath it. And the first is that you're going to be rejected because Jesus is offensive. But the second is that there is a pervasiveness of hope because sometimes rejection is not where the story ends. But it is offensive. The power of Jesus message about the kingdom all throughout the history of the church it has been met with rejection with anger with violence even and it's not just the message it's the it's the life of Jesus the lifestyle of Jesus as well and and Jesus he offends traditional religious conservative cultures because the grace that he offers is not based on moral performance the salvation that he offers isn't something that you can earn there's nothing heroic about it There's nothing about pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps in the gospel. And the kingdom that he offers isn't about making sure that the state legislates Christian behavior or making sure that your coffee cup says Merry Christmas on it or that there is prayer in school. But Jesus also offends progressive cultures because he has the audacity to claim that he is the Lord and it's through the grace that he offers that he makes possible that you're going to find the life that you're looking for. And through his kingdom, this grace is made available. And when you live in this kingdom, it's going to mess a whole lot of things up in your life. It's going to mean a subversion of values. It's going to require a rethinking of reality from the ground up. That what is true, what is false, is based entirely on the person of Jesus of Nazareth and not on your favorite podcast. And that's going to mess with how you see people. It's going to mess with how you see money, with how you see success, with how much you should have while other people don't have anything. It's going to mess with your possessions, with what lines you can cross at work and what lines you cannot cross. It's going to mess with love and relationships and sex, with who you should forgive, with comfort and security, with peace and justice. It's going to mess with your aspirations. It's going to mess with your reputation or maybe some combination of all of those things. I mean, I think about a place like Decatur, They can definitely get on board with some of the values of the kingdom, these ideas about hospitality and and justice and freedom for the poor and the oppressed with nonviolence. That either Jesus is Lord, that he's true, that his kingdom names the only reality there is, and that living as the citizen of this kingdom means that I don't have the freedom to just believe whatever it is that I want to believe. These ideas about judgment and this teaching about spiritual darkness and spiritual light, it's just, it's a bit too much. But here's the thing. What the host culture, wherever the church is, affirms and doesn't affirm, it really doesn't have any bearing on the community of Jesus. The story of the church, right back to the very first disciples, is that Those who follow him should expect rejection. They should also not fight for dominance. 
And you see this tension all throughout the Gospels. You see, you see this paradox as you look into the history of the church that the hope that, of Jesus that they presented was both urgent and divisive. And it was met in the earliest centuries of the church's life with this mixture of both attraction and repulsion. The, the message of Jesus was the most exclusive message that the pagan world had heard. Because the Romans, I mean, they were very pluralistic. They had many gods. Whenever they would go in and conquer a people, they would just add those gods to the mix. They blended them all together. There were household gods. There were national gods. Then Caesar was elevated to godhood status. But the community of Jesus, they believed in one God, three in person. And in sharing this message in Jesus, there was hope for healing, for forgiveness of sin. Which by the way means that there's things like sin and forgiveness that you need. But it's available through this obscure, random Jewish rabbi who grew up in a backwater town of no cultural significance. That claim and that community, you can imagine it was offensive. The Roman elite despised Christians. They called them atheists. And yet in practice... They were also the most inclusive people that the world had ever seen. When plague and illness drove people out of the city, the Christians went in to care for the poor and the marginalized in a way that the pagan world didn't understand, in a way that was mocked. In the, in the community of Jesus, when people came into Rome immigrating in to see a, a, a different life coming from all different backgrounds and ethnicities, they were met by the empire with hostility and anger. But in the Christian community, they found grace. They found a new family. They found hospitality. They found this, this community that was socioeconomically and ethnically diverse. And so it's this, this really strange paradox that we see that this group that was so exclusive in terms of belief, how did it become so welcoming in terms of its practice? And these same communities that were attractive and welcoming were also simultaneously offensive and excluded from the higher forms of cultural life. And part of the secret is in who did they attract? Those who were on the edges and those who were vulnerable. Who did they offend? Well, they offended the powerful and the elite. Somebody could write a whole commentary about how part of the mess that we are in right now is that we've got those things absolutely backwards. But if you take Jesus seriously... And you don't find the offense. You don't feel it on some level. You have to actually consider whether or not it's Jesus that you're actually considering. And as you practice the way of Jesus out in the world, what, what, what Paul calls putting on the aroma of Christ, Jesus is telling his, his disciples to expect that some people are going to find the fragrance and that it's going to be a joy to them. It's going to be a delight. But some people, frankly, are going to find it revulsive. We also need to be clear that not all rejection that we face can actually bear Jesus' name or attach Jesus to it. Sometimes people are rejected just because they're jerks. <laughs> Seems like every week I'm reading another story about how the church is buckling under the weight of its own hypocrisy. Whether that's a celebrity pastor who wears you know, $600 kicks gets caught up in some sort of sex scandal somewhere or whether that's an entire denomination that adds abuse upon abuse just to maintain its image. And each one of these things does more damage 
than the worst thing that a post-Christian culture could throw at the church. And yet so much time is spent trying to shore up. Sometimes it's not Jesus who's rejected at all, it's the community that bears his name. And the thing with that is you, you can't let the fear of being punitively associated with people whose views you don't even necessarily hold keep you from acting with grace and faithfulness out in the world. See, because Jesus promises disciples, you're going to face rejection in the world. And you don't come to Jesus by any other means than through the world. We all come to the culture, you know, through the culture that we are a part of. And you might even face rejection for Jesus for, for embodying his teaching and his lifestyle without saying a whole lot at all. But there's one more thing. You see, Mark ends this story in, in Nazareth, this, this scene with everybody kind of turning their back on Jesus. But rejection, as it turns out, is only part of that story because underneath this story, there is this resilient hope that's sort of bubbling up. Presumably, Jesus' family was there in this small town when everybody was rejecting him and, and asking questions and making accusations. And Mark told us that his family, they've already had their own kind of little intervention with Jesus a while ago. But something changed. Mary, his mother, emerges in the Gospels as one of the heroes of the story. This no-status teenager from nowhere in a time when women were more devalued than they are today. And yet somehow she is chosen by God to know Jesus in a way more intimate than any other person. She carried God in her womb. She nursed him at her breast. She comforted him when he cried. And she sat there as his feet were nailed to a Roman cross. And she got to see him come out of his own tomb. None of that is in today's story. But she was by every account a force in the early church. And then there are his brothers, two of whom are named in this story, James and Jude. They don't believe in him when he comes to town and preaches the gospel. I mean, can you... Be gentle. Can you imagine growing up as Jesus' brothers? Yeah, sure, Mom. Believe Jesus. He never does anything wrong. Who broke the vase? It was Jesus. <laughs> I mean, if anyone was going to have a hard time believing that he's the king, it's, it's these guys, right? But something changed in them. James and Jude, they have letters in the New Testament written in their name. Paul tells us that James was a leader in the early church. Rejection is inevitable, but it's not always the end of the story. And so whenever it is that you face it, and you will, resist the temptation to fight back. But also resist the temptation to despair. Instead, you grieve, you mourn, but then fan the flame of hope. Because the kingdom once scorned is not going to stop until it has reclaimed every square inch of creation. 
And for you, the season of rejection will come to an end. And so whether, wherever you find yourself on the spectrum when it comes to rejection, whether you are grieving it, whether you are facing it, or whether you are celebrating the movement of the kingdom and what started out in rejection but is now coming into this place of hope, the, the prayer is the same. That we would practice the way of Jesus well. That we would bear his image well as we go out into the world. Because Jesus promised his disciples, you will have trouble in this world. But then he follows it up with, but fear not, for I have overcome the world. Friends, that is the truth. And everything that's not that is a lie. And so when you find this thing, it may start out as being so offensive. It may cut across all of the sensibilities about how you think life should be lived. When you find this thing that is so beautiful, so true, that you want to give your life to it, people are going to think you're crazy. They might even be mad at you. They might even reject you. It's going to be divisive. But it is the only thing that's going to give you life.